Hello, and welcome to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast, a weekly program that looks back on historic content from our archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by today's edition. Today's episode is from a 2019 town hall in Connecticut. I travel a lot. The reason I travel a lot is because I love the people of America. And when we watch people on television nowadays, and when you see the news, there's a general disdain for us, for the regular people of the country. And the truth is that disdain comes from both parties. Not everybody in both parties, but both parties. There is in Washington DC today, a ruling elite. They consider themselves elite anyway, and they certainly consider themselves the rulers. I would argue they're wrong on both counts, but there they are in Washington DC, and they're telling us what to do. And they believe they have the right to tell us what to do. Not only the right, but they believe that they have a moral obligation to tell us what to do. They actually think that they're better than us, smarter than us, wiser than us, richer. Well, most of them are richer than us. (laughs) On our backs, I hate to say. You know, I've been going to Washington, D.C. now for about 10 years on and off since I started in the Tea Party movement. It's been really interesting because 10 years ago, back in 09, you know, we're, we're in the heart of the the depression basically the great recession and in washington dc occasionally i'd fly into dulles if you've been into dc you know dulles is the airport that's further out and i would take a cab back then uh, uber more recently into the city it's about a 40 minute ride or so 35 minute ride and as i rode along i would count the construction cranes the cranes that were missing from all the other cities i traveled to in the country where I saw no building or abandoned building sites, all those giant construction cranes were in Washington, D.C. and the areas around Washington, D.C. Seven out of the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States of America are around Washington, D.C. It's incredible. The reason it's not all 10 is they have to have a place for the poor service employees to live. We laugh about that, but it's not supposed to be this way. This is not how the country was envisioned. I think they built Washington, D.C. in a swamp for a reason is they didn't want them to stay there all the time. (laughs) If we didn't have air conditioning, we might be better off in Washington, D.C. So I travel around the country. I get to meet folks like you all over the country, and it gives me an entirely different perspective. If you watch TV, and I try not to watch too much of it, you can get hopeless watching TV, right? And again, I'm going to place the blame all over the place, whether you're watching MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or PBS or whatever it is, all you see is terrible stuff. You see the tragedy, you see the suffering, you see bad people doing bad things to other people. That's not America, right? When I travel around America, what I see in every community I go to, I meet incredible patriots, people who love the country, people who understand what it was that built the country, people of faith, people of character, people who work in their communities. That's my view of America. I have a statue of Ronald Reagan in my office, a bust. Uh, And I I don't have a lot of statuary. It was an award I got many years ago in the Tea Party movement. And I actually took the bust off of the award because I don't like the awards. And I just have Ronald Reagan's bust there in my office. And there's a quote on the back of it. And it's not the most common Reagan quote, but it's my favorite Reagan quote. And Reagan said, that they say that we live in a time when there are no heroes, but they just don't know where to look. And that's my experience in America. You know, I travel around, I talk to a lot of people. Those of you who know me know that I'm always trying to find out what's your story. We were talking about your story tonight. I wanna know everybody's story. And the reason I always wanna know everybody's story is the truth is every person I meet in this country has an amazing story. 
there's a hero inside everybody. Something has happened in their life where they've done extraordinary things, overcome extraordinary obstacles, helped people in extraordinary ways, invented things, imagined things, dreamed things, done things. This is what the average American is like. It's like hard for me to say average American because I haven't met any of those. And so I have great hope for this country and great belief in the future of this country. That's my foundation. And where that comes from for me personally is from my faith. A little bit about me so you get to know me a little bit better. I was raised in Los Angeles, California. I have a very close family. We're all still really close. It's my, I have a brother who's two years younger than me. Both my parents are still alive. My dad's 81, my mom's 78. They moved to Texas with me recently. Uh, from a faith perspective, I was raised in a secular Jewish household. I'll tell you, for, for me growing up in LA, that's how most of the Jewish folks I knew were. We were all secular. Those who went to temple weren't really practicing. We were ritualizing, I would say. And I grew up really without faith. I went to college at San Diego State. At San Diego State, I learned that religion was the most evil force on earth in all of history. That's what I learned in college. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That's what I was taught by my religion professors. I was really fascinated by religion because if you don't understand religion, you can't understand humanity. The course of humanity is directed by the course of religious movements throughout history. So I took a lot of religion courses. And when I came out of college, I was what I would describe as a very mean atheist. Like I really hated Christianity, Christians especially, learned that in college very specifically. And I thought that I had all the answers. I was the smartest guy in the room. I knew nothing, but I was the smartest guy in the room. And I had kids, I went through a bunch of stuff. And you know, when you have kids and you look at them in that crib and you'll see that miracle, it's hard to think that it's all about you anymore when you look at that, right? It's hard to, it's, it's just a miracle. If, if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm saying. If you haven't had kids, trust me, you'll see it. If you're young and you haven't had them yet, you'll see it. And I, I remember looking at my son and thinking, that's just something more than I can understand, right? That's not just biology, that's a miracle. And if you believe in miracles, then there's something that's creating miracles, right? And so it sent me off on kind of a lifetime quest to figure out what, what was it all about, right? And I'm a slow learner, I promise you, I'm a very slow learner. I looked at everything in my life. I, I literally studied Buddhism pretty extensively. I studied Hinduism, the precursor to Hinduism, something most people never heard of called Jainism. I, was, I went to India and I spent time in India. Just India is a fabulous, interesting place. The idea of religion in India that I fell in love with, not the religion, but the way religion is practiced in India is life is religion and religion is life. There's no such thing as going to church on Sunday in India. Everybody has a little shrine in their home. There are temples all over the streets. I fell in love with that idea that oh, it's not a separation between people and Sunday school. It's all the time. And, but I didn't find a home. I got into politics. And when I got into politics, I, I was a seeker, but still I would describe myself maybe agnostic at this point. And I met a bunch of people as I traveled around the country. I love people. It's just how I'm wired. I just love people. Everywhere I go, I find people I fall in love with. Always been this way my whole life. And if, if you ask me what's my hobby and do you collect anything, I say I collect relationships. That's what I love to collect, right? The more relationships I have, the richer I am. And so I always had that. And I started going into politics and I travel around and I would meet people and I would sit with somebody and I'd be having coffee late at night and we'd be talking life and kids and politics and philosophy and religion and I'd be thinking man I love this guy he's just amazing and I'd always get around asking so what is it like where do you get all that from that love of life that peace that you seem to have whatever it is and it was always I heard this over and over some version of 
it's my faith, it's my relationship with Jesus, it's because I became a Christian. So I heard this all over. I'm a slow learner, I told you this, right? And so it didn't really do anything except for I kept saying, oh, that's interesting, that's very interesting. Today I say, thank you for being so patient, Lord, right? And so uh, eventually, after doing all of this for so long, I met a guy who's become one of my closest friends. He sits on my board of directors, his name's Tim Dunn. And he started talking to me about, what do you, he asked me, what do you know about your own heritage and your own faith? And my answer was nothing, right? Really, nothing. I, I know both my folks are Jewish. We come from Ukraine. That's what I know about my faith. <laughs> That's not a lot, I know. <laughs> That's what I knew, but I knew everything, right? And he started introducing me to all this scripture and he said, oh, you need to read Hebrews and you need to study Paul and you need to, long story short through all this, ultimately I, I became a Christian. And I wanna tell you like, I, I wish when I tell the story, my, my testimony, I wish there were, I could tell you like, and I hiked to the top of this mountain, <laughs> the clouds were, it didn't happen like that at all for me. This is how it happened for me. I don't remember the day. At some point I thought, it doesn't make any sense not to believe anymore. I guess I believe. Okay. Yeah, that was it. That was pretty much it for me. It obviously changed everything in my life in one moment. And it explained a lot of the way that I'd always felt my entire life. Like I don't, it, I changed everything. Of course I was reborn. Everything was new and everything had changed, but it explained so much. And one of the things that explained to me, and I, I'm, I'm telling you this because there's going to be a theme here. I promise I'm going to get to it. I love people, right? And so Tim said to me one day, my good friend Tim, he said, do you know why you love people so much? And I said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm a people person. I've always loved people. And he goes, no, 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 that's not it. He said, who made people? And I said, well, God made people. And he goes, that's right. And in whose image did God make people? And I said, in his own image. And he said, so when you look in a person's eyes and you love that person, what are you loving? And I said, God? And he said, exactly. And he said, that's why you love people so much. Because when you build relationships with people and you get close with people, then that's, you're getting closer to God. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be in relationships. So I'm, I'm telling you all that. I know that's not what you came to hear. I'm not here to preach a sermon. I'm telling you that because I just want you to know me a little better. It's really important that you know me because politicians don't want you to know them. There's a facade in front of a politician. There's a thing they want you to see, and that's what you're supposed to see. That's what you're supposed to vote for. I'm not a politician. I'm just a guy like you guys, like you men and women in this audience. So how does this tie all back to politics? Here's how it ties to politics for me. I did the Tea Party thing. Uh, like you said, the Tea Party thing didn't work out so well, really, in the end. We elected the largest swing class in the history of Congress since 1938. They went to Washington, D.C. I believed everything would change, and then, Nothing changed. I'd invested my life, my personal money, literally. My wife and I went to the edge of bankruptcy building the Tea Party movement, uh, and, and then nothing changed. And I really believed everything was gonna change. I, I was sure everything was gonna change, and nothing changed. And so that's bad, because that's a failure. And for me, it was worse, because I had a lot of people, millions of people depending on me, like, and saying to me, well, now what do we do? So it's okay if you're sitting around the dinner table and you're engaged in politics and your family says, well, gosh, what do we do now? And you can go, I don't know, <laughs> right? When you're up here, you can't say, I don't know. <laughs> it's not okay. Not if you wanna stay up here. Not if you really believe that you're in the fight for a purpose. And I was really struggling and it would keep me up at night because I didn't know what to do. 
because I had tried, I had tried my eighth grade civics version of politics, which is we support, uh, we vote for, we elect the people we believe in, and then they do the things they tell us they're gonna do, right? That's the eighth grade civics version. And it had not worked. And that was as sophisticated as my knowledge was. Well, I was really blessed because I came across a guy by the name of Mike Ferris. Uh, if any of you, anybody in here homeschooled or has homeschooled kids? Okay, you guys know who Mike Ferris is, right? Okay. Mike Ferris is a hero to the homeschool movement. Uh, back in 1970s, early 70s, homeschooling was illegal in all 50 states. Anybody not know that? I didn't know that. Seems really weird, doesn't it? Like the government won't let you teach your own kids, but that was the law. They didn't necessarily do it by saying homeschooling is illegal. They would say, oh, if you're gonna teach your daughter, you have to be certified in every subject matter area. No human can do that, right? Or they would say, oh, your school facility, your home, it has to be exactly the same as a school, right? It has to have all the same things we require school. So you just couldn't do it. Mike was a young constitutional attorney and he said, that's wrong which we would all agree with. And he said, I'm gonna fix it, which most people would say, you're insane. <laughs> no internet, no cell phones. Fax machines were high tech back then, right? And Mike built a national movement founded Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which is the largest homeschool association to this day. Ultimately built Patrick Henry College, which is a great college for homeschool kids. A lot of homeschool kids go there. And he changed America. For the better, I would argue, by the way, today, from traveling around the country, from my own experience, homeschoolers will save the country. Seriously. If you don't know homeschool families, you should. They're going to save the country. Okay, so Mike comes to me one day and he says, are you happy with what you've done in politics? I say, no, I'm miserable. Uh, it's been a failure. And he says, well, that's because you're approaching the wrong problem. You think we have a personnel problem in Washington, D.C., but we don't. We have a structure problem. We have broken the structure of governance, and you can put as many good people in Washington, D.C. as you want, and we will still get bad results. And that blew my mind. I just thought you elect good people. And he explained to me why, he explained how the Constitution has expanded its definition of what the federal government can do. Federal government has huge powers it was never intended to have. If you put human beings in a place where they have access, access to power, they are going to use that power, right? We're human beings, that's what we do. And he said, so until we fix the structure, we're gonna have the same problems. How do we fix the structure? The founders told us how to fix the structure. Here's how, what the founders told us about how to fix the structure. On September 15th, 1787, by the way, I, I think September 15th is the most important day in American history. Anybody know why? It's my wife's birthday. <laughs> I didn't think you guys would get it. It is also what we call Article 5 Day. <laughs> I'm glad she's not here. You're going to be in big trouble. She knows you. <laughs> so September 15th, 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, it's two days before the end of convention, Colonel George Mason stands up. He's from Virginia. He's actually the most important man at the convention. He says more than anybody else at convention, he introduces the Virginia plan. And two days before the end of the convention, he is once again a thorn in the side of all the other commissioners. They're done. They've drafted the entire document. They agree on it. They're ready to go home. And he says, we have a big problem. We've given the federal government the power to propose amendments, but we haven't given that same power to the people acting through their states. And then he asks a question, which is still relevant today. Are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? Some people chuckled. I'm pretty sure they laughed at convention. 
And when I say I'm sure they left, I'm, I'm actually sure. And here's why I'm sure. If you read Madison's notes, if what they say in that spot is something so unusual. These guys debated everything. They debated the style of debate, right? <laughs> who gets to go first? Who goes? They debated everything on this point. Madison's notes say nin com, Latin for no comment, no debate, no discussion. Mason makes this extraordinary comment that they have this huge flaw in the document. And not one man in that room of people who love to argue, love to hear their own voices, not one of them says, Oh, come on, George, give it a rest, right? They all agree. It's the collective forehead slap. And unanimously, they agree to give you and me the power to call a convention to propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny. The only thing in the Constitution that is added without debate and unanimously voted into the Constitution. It's extraordinary. And they were looking forward to the future and they were looking at us 243 years into the future after ratification of the Constitution, they were looking to us and saying, you guys are gonna have some problems. Why did they know we we're gonna have problems? Their crystal ball wasn't great. It was their ability to look back in history that was so strong. These men understood history. They had all read the Bible, Old and New Testament. They had read ancient Roman and ancient Greek history. They knew about all the republics. They knew all the terrible ills that had befallen all the political systems that came before them. And they knew human nature. Human nature never changes. Library gets fancier, we get computers and smartphones. Human nature never changes. And they knew people would lust after power because that's what people do. And they knew that if we centralized a government, which is what they were creating, that would continue to centralize. Power always accretes power to itself. It is the nature of power in the hands of human beings. And so they knew they had to give us this mechanism, this radical mechanism whereby we could take the power away from Congress. I wanna explain a little bit to you, some people in the audience are new to this, I wanna explain exactly how this works functionally. It's kind of an interesting process and one of the things that I love so much as I read the history of the founders is they were experts on process. They understood the nature of structure and process and that when you plug humans in, you're gonna get a certain result based on structure and process. And so they built a structure and a process into the Constitution. The Constitution is pretty much all structure and process and it's no different for Article 5. The first clause of Article 5 of the Constitution tells us how Congress can propose amendments to the Constitution. Whenever two-thirds of houses shall propose, right? So two-thirds of both houses propose an amendment to the Constitution, that amendment will go out to the states for ratification by three-quarters of the states. The second way is our way. It's Mason's way. And it says, whenever two-thirds of the states shall call for a convention, then Congress shall name the time and place of that convention. The states gather, debate and discuss amendments, and then if more than half of them agree to put those amendments as suggestions out to the states, they go out to the states for ratification by the same process. Three quarters of the states have to ratify any amendments that come out of a convention. So that's how the process works. Now where are we at and what are we actually doing? Well today, I think the federal government's out of control. Anybody agree with that? Raise your hand if you think the federal government. Well, it's almost unanimous in here. Uh, federal government is out of control, and we all think so. By the way, 72% of Americans today say that the federal government is too big and does too much. I don't know if you've looked at party registration, that's not just Republicans, right? Pretty much everybody thinks the federal government is too big and does too much. We might think different things, too much money on defense, too much money on welfare, whatever you think, but we all agree the federal government's doing too much. There's another statistic just came out recently that really terrified me. 27% of Americans believe that the federal government has the consent of the governed. 
That's called pre-revolutionary, my friends, right? When three quarters of roughly of the American public says, those folks in Washington, D.C. don't have my consent anymore, and our government, this republic, is a republic of consent of the governed, we have a serious problem. We are in pre-revolutionary times. When I say that, sometimes people think I'm being too radical. Uh, like, that just sounds crazy, like we're gonna have a revolution. I think we're on the verge of a civil war. I would argue right now we're probably in what I would describe as a cold civil war. And I think we're fairly close to a full-blown revolution, at least a political revolution. I love to read the period before the American Revolution. Most of us, when we study the American Revolution, now you gotta forgive me if I get this wrong because I went to school in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> <laughs> the earth was birthed from a poppy. No, I don't. <laughs> I didn't actually learn that. Um, so when we study the history of the American Revolution, most of us start somewhere around 1774, 1776, right? The revolution begins. I'm really interested in the period before the American Revolution because I want to know, like, how did they get there? It's pretty radical. You think about what they did. I mean, we're in that part of the country now and, and think about what our forefathers, what those families did. They rose up against the most powerful empire ever on the face of the earth the most powerful army, the most powerful economy, the most powerful navy. It's incredible that the pinnacle of science and philosophy and literature, they rose up against that. Something was going on. They probably really hated the British system of governance, right? I mean, you have to have a pretty, they didn't. This is weird. They loved the British system of governance. Okay, I'm, I'm probably, you guys are all thinking, this guy's out of his mind. They hate, right? The tyranny, the British tyranny. They hated the king. They hated the monarchy. They loved the British system of governance. If you want to read about this, read Bernard Balin. He's a great historian on this, B-A-I-L-Y-N. And Balin only quotes from the original writers of the era. He doesn't write through the lens of history. He goes back, pulls the original writings. And this is what you find in Balin's writings. The pamphleteers, which is how most people got their information, were writing both in England and here in the colonies. And you'll find this line running throughout the pamphlets when people are writing about the politics of England and the colonies. That the British government is the finest government ever invented by mankind for the preservation of liberty. Does that sound like people who want a revolution? They sound pretty happy with their government, right? Here's the thing that usually follows it, though. However, all three branches of our governments now conspire together against the people. Does that sound familiar? I don't know about you, that gives me chills. <laughs> we think we have a fantastic system of governance, probably the finest ever designed by mankind for the preservation of liberty. However, today, all three branches of government Right? The legislature, the executive, and the courts conspire against us together to increase their own power, to increase their own wealth, to increase their own prestige against the interests of the people. I tell you that because when I say we're in pre-revolutionary times, I want you to understand, we are saying the same things that they were saying before they fought the American Revolution. Most people don't know about that part of our history. They loved Britain. They loved being part of Britain. They loved the British system of governance and philosophy, and they, they actually loved the monarchy, and, and they had a divided system of government. They believed in branches of government balancing each other out. They just thought their government had become corrupt and was no longer serving them. They are... They were then where we are today. So what's the difference between us and them? 
they picked up their muskets and they fought the government, right? So what's the difference? Why don't we pick up our muskets or our weapons and fight the government? And the answer is because they did. Because they did for us. And so we don't have to. They shed blood, families died, businesses destroyed, so that we didn't have to do that. They gave us a gift. And that gift is our heritage, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. And they gave us those things. And inside the Constitution, hidden away in this corner of Article 5 that we've never used before, is the power to reshape our system of governance. It's an incredible power we have. We've never used it. They don't want us to use it. And we've never used it. We've come close a couple of times. People have scared us away, but we've never used it. I have a really vivid imagination. I like to think about the founders a lot. I read a lot about the founders. Uh, probably, you know, I think if I, if I could talk to one of the founders, it's hard to think about, like, if I had to choose one. I'm a big fan of Patrick Henry. He was an incredible orator. Uh, you know, Hen yeah, and Henry and Madison, you know, they didn't like each other very much. You guys know the story about the fight between these guys? Madison is the greatest writer of the founders, right? Just an incredible writer, researcher, reads everything. Not a very good public speaker. Brings notes with him. He's kind of quiet. He's not inspiring to people. Henry never wrote a word down, right? He was considered the greatest orator of the American Revolution. He would get up on stage and give a speech, no notes, no planning, no nothing, right? You know the famous, the most famous Patrick Henry speech? Give me liberty or give me death, right? Great speech in the Virginia House of Burgess. Amazing speech. He's 27-year-old barrister. He's just getting started. He has no right to be saying what he's saying. He's saying it to all the old gray hair guys. He's challenging Washington in that speech who's sitting in that Virginia House of Burgess. They sent men to write down that speech because he never took notes for his speech. And when it was all over, those who were sent to write down his speech had forgotten to take notes. <laughs> because he was such a good speaker. We don't even know if the speech that we know is actually the speech. It had to be reconstructed afterwards. So he and Madison didn't like each other very much. I'd love to meet Madison. I recently saw Madison's book list of the books that Jefferson sent him from France. So I'd love to dig in and sit with Madison and talk about world history and philosophy and religion. I'd love to know what Henry felt before he got on stage, but the guy that I like the most, I think, in American history is probably Ben Franklin. Franklin knew everything. Like, he's so many subjects, he was so smart, and he was such a social guy. Like, everybody loved Ben. He could go out and he could be the center of attention in any room. And he was also kind of a cranky old man by the time of the Revolution. And I imagine myself talking to Ben Franklin. I imagine sitting around maybe having a pint of ale with him in, in one of the ale houses and I'd say, Dr. Franklin, you know, we're so frustrated. We live in a time, it's just unbelievable, where they literally tell us what kind of light bulbs can be in our light fixtures. And we know that's not invented yet, Dr. Franklin, but we're gonna get around to using that electricity thing you just discovered. And they tell us how much water our toilets can flush, right? Everything, they tell us what, what kind of, materials can be in the paint and the walls and the carpet you wake up in the morning the blankets you sleep in the way your beds made what the traffic everything is the government and we're just frustrated and I imagine he would say well it sounds like the federal government's out of control and I would say yeah they are well what have you done about it well we elected a bunch more people okay and how'd they do mm, not very well okay so what'd you do next we complained a lot you're like, and? <laughs> and? 
And I imagine you would eventually get around to say, well, well what about Article 5? Colonel Mason, he was so smart, he gave you Article 5. Have you done something with Article 5? And I would say, I mean, people have been kind of scared about that one. Ben, I, and I imagine he would be pretty annoyed with me. And I imagine he would say, go away. Come back, boy, when you've had some time to work this one out for yourselves. We gave you the tools, and the question is, will you have the intestinal fortitude to use them? That's really where we're at today in America, in my opinion. The real question is, will we, the people, have the intestinal fortitude? You know the famous story about Ben Franklin after he comes out of convention, right? And he is approached by a woman who asks him, what kind of government have you given us, doctor? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. The key word in that, by the way, is you. He didn't say, if all these guys you elect, he didn't say really wise people in Philadelphia. Washington, D.C. didn't exist yet. He didn't say a ruling elite somewhere. He said, and he was talking to just a common woman. He said, if you can keep it. To me, that's the question of our times. Can we keep it? This is really unique, what we have. We take this for granted. You know, if you look at the arc of history, of all of human history, I love to read history, and you can go all the way back in all of recorded history. The pendulum swings back and forth in history, right? You've got, on the one end is tyranny, right? And on the other end is really bad tyranny. That's the arc of human history. It really is. When you look at human history, not a lot of liberty in human history. Not a lot of human freedom. Not, God grants us free will. We don't get much place to exercise free will, really, like we have it here in all of human history. The only place I know in all of human history, other than right here and now, in this time that we're living, where we have this kind of freedom, is in the Old Testament in the period of Judges. And right? you go to back to the Old Testament, and the people chose from among themselves judges. There were no rulers, right? And so, and what did the people go and do at that point? They rejected that. <laughs> they said, give us a king who will tell us what to do. Right? And think, so I, we laugh about that, but I think that's right where we are in American history right now. You know, I have what I call a political theology. Now, I know it's, you're not supposed to combine politics and religion, right? This is a really bad thing. But I do. Here's why. First, I'm going to explain why, and I'm going to explain what it is. So my political theology is, you know, I look back to history. If you look at the definition in Greek, the ancient word for politics, the definition, I, I'm paraphrasing. My Greek's not that good. But basically, politics is how we organize in groups of people to influence other people. Okay, how we organize in groups of people to influence other people, that's politics. If you go back to the ancient root word for religion in ancient Greek, and you look at what that means, it's how we organize around a set of moral principles. How we organize to influence other people, how we organize around a set of moral principles. Now, I want you to think about this. If we do politics without faith, without religion, without a belief in God, that means we are trying to influence other people without any respect to any form of morality. I would posit that that's evil. And I know that's a big word. I'm not supposed to use that word either. I, that's just what I believe. I think if you don't have a moral code upon which you rely and you're trying to influence other people, what are you trying to influence them for? For your own benefit? For the benefit of a particular group? To make money? What is it? No, it should be tied to a moral code for me. That's my faith. That's my Christianity. But without that, I, I just think we're lost. And when I look at, for me, biblically, when I look at the Bible, I say, well, look, I, I look at 1 Samuel 8 is really important to me. 1 Samuel 8 is what I was just talking about, right? Samuel goes to the Lord, says, Lord, I failed you. The people want a king, 
right? And the Lord says, you haven't failed me. It's not you, it's them. They're the ones who want a king. You're doing it right. He says, go tell them that they're going to get whatever they want. (laughs) They're going to get a king. King's going to take their sons and make them into his soldiers. King's going to take their crops, the best of their crops and their livestock and make them his. Going to take their daughters into his house. They'll be his perfumers, right? Basically, the government's going to control them. You've heard the saying, a government big enough to give you what you want is big enough to take it all away too, right? So that's what he's saying there. And God, look, God gives us what we want. That's the worst punishment he can ever dole out on us, what we want, right? And that's, that's what happens there. It doesn't go very well for them. And the other end of my personal political theology would be Romans 13. And in Romans 13, we're told that we're supposed to obey the governing authorities, all, all authorities anointed by God, right? I believe that. And I did not like that when I first read that. I was really annoyed by that. I'm a rebel. Like, I don't like the government. I don't want to have to listen to the governing authority. By the way, I had a blue mohawk in law school. If you don't believe I'm a rebel, There are no photos, so you have to to believe me. There was no digital back then, thank God. Uh, But if so, if you look at that and you say, we're supposed to obey the governing authorities, what does that mean? So we just go, okay, well, you know, Washington DC's bad and the president's bad or, these courts are bad. And I really had to dig into this. And I spent a lot of time talking to people who know a lot more than me about everything, politics, theology, scripture. And I came to an entirely different understanding of Romans 13. You know, the government's different in every time period in history. Who the governing authorities are different. In, in, in the days of the ancient Romans and, and in Christ's time, it was Caesar. Right? So Caesar was the guy. Our law came from Caesar. Everything came from Caesar. And so that was the governing authority. And that was the point at the time. In this country, in this day and age, who, are, who is the governing authority? Anybody? The people. Father, you got it right. We the people. This is really weird in all of human history. Our constitution says something entirely unique. It says we the people. You know, if you look at the governing documents of every other country in history, including all those that exist today, they are essentially a grant of rights by a government to a people. That's the way governing documents work. Our constitution is a weapon to be wielded by the people against the government to prevent them from infringing upon our God-created rights. It's exactly the opposite, right? So who are the governing authorities? We are. So that means something. It means something pretty radical in my opinion. So when I first realized that, I was pretty self-righteous about it because I thought, okay, I get it. I'm right. Those guys in DC are all wrong. They're going to be punished. (laughs) And my friend Tim, who's a lot wiser than me, said, no, you don't get that right at all. What? Like they're, they're not listening to us. And he goes, yeah, and you're the governing authority. And you're not doing anything about that, are you? And you have the power to do something about that, don't you? I said, yeah. And he goes, so who is really responsible? Right? So with great authority comes great responsibility. And we have been given the authority in this country. We are the sovereign in the United States of America. We are the rulers in this country. We are in charge in this country. And by the way, we don't need to change anything to be in charge. We have this power right now, today. It's been given to us. Not, not given to us by the government, by the way. Given to us by God, endowed by our creator. 
our constitution, our government designed to protect that. And when they get out of control, it's up to us to hold them accountable. Or we will suffer the punishment and we will be held accountable here and in the after, in my opinion. So the question is, do we have the fortitude? Will we do it? My opinion is we will. In fact, we are. This organization six years ago was me and my wife and about five other people today. As of yesterday, I heard we've just passed 4.1 million people. All right, that's serious. I could, never, I could never have imagined that, right? In six years, I couldn't have imagined that. And so here we are, we've now passed our resolution in 15 states. The resolution that calls for this convention is passed in 15 states. We have to get to 34, that means 19 to go. I'm gonna real quick close with what the resolution says and then I'm gonna open it for questions because that's really the most important part. So the way the resolution works is it takes both houses in a state to pass the resolution to put that on the books as a state calling for a convention. The resolution has three things in it. It's what's called a subject matter resolution. And the three things are this. At convention, we're gonna talk about anything that could impose uh, fiscal restraint on the federal government. Does that sound good to you guys? Get their fiscal house in order? So things like a balanced budget amendment, uh, tax and spending caps, how about limiting taxes based on growth in GDP or growth in population plus inflation? Here's a radical and unique one. How about making the federal government use generally accepted accounting principles instead of, instead of Skittles and M&Ms? <laughs> The second is anything that would impose term limits on federal officials. That might include Congress. Anybody think some of these guys stay around too long? Yeah, yeah. So term limits on Congress, but how about term limits on bureaucrats, staffers, and the judges on the courts, right? So that's term limits. And then to me, the most important one, anything that would impose limitations on the scope, the power, and the jurisdiction of the federal government. Anybody think the federal government has too much power? Yeah. Way too much. So let me give you a perfect example of that and I'll close and we'll go to questions. So there's a little clause in the Constitution called the Commerce Clause. Because most of you have heard of the Commerce Clause? Okay, so the Commerce Clause was intended to be a narrow grant of power to the federal government. It says this, that the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce, right? And so when we read that, regulation to us means regulate, right? Right, regulations that control something. And we think of maybe the Federal Register, which is now 80,000 pages or some ridiculous amount of pages or something, or you know that the state of Connecticut has incredible amount of regulation over everything you put. We think of regulation, right? 1787, they had no such thing. <laughs> if you had said the Federal Register, they would not know what that is. If you said the government regulates industry, they would not know what you meant. When they said regulate, what they meant was regularize make it smooth, make it work, right? And there's a reason. Your neighbors, New York and New Jersey, are in a trade war at the time of the 1787 convention, and they're about to come to military blows over tariffs. And so these guys in that room were saying, hey, we gotta stop that, that's crazy. We gotta get along. We'll give the federal government the power to smooth that stuff out. Interstate means the same thing between states. Commerce in 1787, when we say commerce, we mean business, right? Doing commerce is doing business. A store engages in commerce. When you go buy something at a store, you engage in commerce. You buy something online, you engage in commerce. In 1787, commerce means the shipment of goods. It doesn't mean business. So what do they give the federal government the power to do? Smooth out the shipment of goods across state lines. Because that's the fight we're having right then, right? 
It's a narrow, narrow power. In 1931, there's a case called Wickard v. Filburn, the most insane case ever by the Supreme Court. Farmer is growing wheat for the consumption of his own household, his livestock, his family in Ohio. The government has quotas on how much wheat you can grow. He grows too much wheat. They impose penalties on him. He says, I'm growing wheat for my own family. You have no legal right to impose penalties on me. And they said, oh yes, but we do, the Interstate Commerce Clause. And he says, I'm not engaged in commerce. I didn't sell anything, I didn't buy anything, I didn't ship anything across state lines. And they said, exactly. <laughs> yeah? They said, because you did not buy anything off the interstate markets, you have now affected interstate commerce. Which means doing nothing equals doing something, which means the government can regulate anything. There's a long line of cases that follow on from there. By the way, the Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, EPA, USDA, FDA, uh, Education, Energy, all these departments operate under Commerce Clause authority. In other words, our beloved Constitution has nothing in it that says that the federal government can do any of those things. It's all invented by the court. So when I say limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government, how about we take the Commerce Clause and go like this? Ooh. Anybody in favor of that? Yeah. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com.